Why? Indigenous Words and Ideas with Arcia Tecun. Now, this is the first time we're doing this and we're not in person. So we're using the Baja Ope, the digital space this time. And uh, I'm coming to you from Songane here in Salt Lake Valley, out there still in Tamaki Makoto in Auckland. Uh, and we just wrote this paper, Tongan Coloniality, Contesting the Never Colonized Narrative. For those who are unfamiliar, Tonga is one of the places in the world that claims to have never been colonized, at least in the public consciousness or popular consciousness. And we were like looking at all kinds of stuff and had all kinds of different experiences, which we'll kind of get into as to why we decided to write about that and reflect and respond to it. One, what was one of the reasons why you felt we needed to write this paper, like a little bit of the background? I'm, I mean, Daniel and I have been having this conversation for years, years and years, um, probably since the start of my um, PhD in 2018. Um, probably shouldn't disclose that, but um, yeah, I mean, part of part of the research that I'm doing, I'm, you know, my research was originally, and it still is, looking at um, family and music and what that can tell us about uh, Tongan identity, Tongan culture, Tongan society, history, all that, all that stuff. Um, and I was, as I was, you know, going through the literature, reflecting on uh, my own experiences growing up in the Tongan culture, my own experiences um, being part of the community, you know, I started to ask questions, you know, or I started to realize, you know, the differences of the ways that the family or the family or the Kainga's expressed within Tonga is very different from these ideas around the nuclear family, Western kinship, um, and even and music as well. And then I took it a little even further and I was like, oh, what does it mean to be Tongan? And, and that's kind of when I, when I ran into the, I ran into kind of this popular narrative around, you know, Tongan never being colonized or Tongan never be formally, formally colonized. Because when you look at family and when you look at music within the context of Tonga, these are very particular sites where colonial ideas or perspectives or systems of power really change the entire dynamic of the way the ways in which kinship was maybe structured before colonization before Christianity um and so that's kind of where this I, I would say where this um this article eventually took fruition with Daniel and I was that we can't really talk about colonization in Tonga without actually confronting head-on, I would say, um, just this, this idea that Tonga was never colonized. Because when you look at the history, when you look at kind of systems of power and you look at um, experiences that people ha are having within uh, the modern global capitalist system, you really will find how, you know, European colonialism, European uh, uh, imperialism has highly influenced Tongan society, Tongan culture, so much that um, despite us even realizing it now, you know, face, you know, on the surface, you, you take a little bit, you, you look at it a, bit, a little bit further and you realize that 
it was very different before colon, uh, colonization or European colonization or modern colonialism. It was very different um, as, as the, the structure of the family and the structure of the way that music was expressed. No, that, that reminds me, you know, like there was an experience I had back in 2015. Um, there was a Kava conference that was um, led by the Loao uh, University group and Sosiwa Lafatani, and it was it took place in Canberra, Australia. And there was uh, an honored guest there, uh, the Princess Latufuipeka Tukwaho, who who was giving kind of the opening of of that conference. And I remember her mentioning. Uh, in in that moment, and I, I wrote about this in my my thesis as well. Like she mentioned that Gava was part of the indigenous culture of Tonga, and but I had never heard somebody like make a distinction in that way, right? And so then I was like, well, wait a minute, because colonization is usually right one of the markers of indigeneity within the global kind of geopolitical landscape. And, and I, I appreciate that because it made me begin, I was like questioning further. I was like, okay, wait a minute. Because I was trying to talk about indigenous knowledge, indigenous issues um, from Tonga perspectives and engaging with, with that legacy. But then that was where this other like roadblock would come up, right? Is then we were trying to talk about indigenous or indigeneity. And then people were like, no, you can't if you're not colonized. Because colonization was the defining marker for indigenous. And, and in a lot of ways, not that we're agreeing with this, but if you look at indigenous studies today, it is dominated by what we would call settler colonial studies and settler colonial nation states, right? And what that means is populations of predominantly European descendants who have not replaced, but are are, are framed as trying, having attempted to replace the local indigenous population. So these are countries like the United States, Canada, uh, New Zealand, and Australia. And, and because a lot of this, that scholarship of indigenous studies comes from those regions and those places, that experience ends up kind of dominating the conversation. So we ended up getting blocked academically from having, we just wanted to talk about indigenous knowledge in Tonga or indigenous perspectives at different times. And then there were some people like, oh, you can't, that doesn't work, that doesn't work in Tonga. And then I remember we had this, uh, this paper that Ata, myself, uh, another mate, uh, Noke and Taukete um, Tevita Kaili were also working on, uh, and we use borderlands theory, um, which is coming from uh, Gloria Ansaldua and Chicana feminist and queer studies. And we got blocked there too, because they're like, oh no, that doesn't fit. That is, that's not appropriate for the Pacific. And we're like, why not? And it's just because, oh, it was like they were isolating the Pacific. And it's like, nobody was questioning the white European theory or idea that <laughs> come from that. But they're like, but you could do that or you could do Pacific. And so it's again that that binary, like you can either do white or whatever you're doing, but nothing <laughs> else. And we're like, dude, the Pacific has already been global. Mm-hmm. And so we, and that was, more, I mean, that was over five uh, attempts, four journals. We're on our current one now. Who knows if that paper will get published? If it does, we'll do a podcast <laughs> for that one. But we're, wait, we're waiting on that one now. And it was 2017 when we first submitted that one. And so this, this paper is kind of like, all right, this is the work we have to do in order to do the work that we've been trying to do and that we really want to do, which is way beyond this conversation. But we realize that this conversation is a hard one too. Um, <laughs> and perhaps we've triggered some people online as well. Um, and so we thought, hey, we'll do this episode, give a little bit of background, give a little bit of explanation as to you know what this means. And, and again, the tricky thing is because uh, the definitions. And so 
we're using the term coloniality. Um, we'll talk about that here in just a second, but I did want to, I'm going to read one quote real quick. And this is from the Tongan scholar uh, legend, right? Konai uh, Heluthaman. Um, and we quote her in our paper, and she obviously has been struggling with this as well. She has had to confront, I imagine, like people not considering majority nations of indigenous peoples within the indigenous conversation. She talks about how the use of the term indigenous should be in a way that is inclusive of any, quote, descendants of the first people who identify with the land. There's irrespective of whether they belong to minority or majority populations in a country, close quote. She goes on to explain that her use of indigenous when referring to Tonga or people of Kakai Tonga or Tongans, it, that it differs from the international community's dominant idea that usually only recognizes indigenous minorities within their own ancestral lands, right? And that's from a chapter um, called No Need to Whisper, Reclaiming Indigenous Knowledge and Education in the Pacific. And it's from the anthology or the book of a collection of chapters called Whispers and Vanities, primarily around indigenous uh, Samoan uh, beliefs and practices. And so you can find that chapter there if you want. But obviously, if she's giving that definition and saying, hey, I'm using indigenous different than the way that the international community is. Well, why is that? And so that's one of the reasons that we wanted to um, kind of confront both indigenous and colonization and coloniality uh, in the context of Tonga. Now, Tonga is not the only country that claims to not be colonized. Ethiopia is another one. Um, I mean, some people might say China as well. Um, but we, but then at the same time, how all these places are using the same global economic system, and they that was constructed and maintained through a post-Columbus um, colonial imperial paradigm. Um, and so how are they not impacted or following this same template? Like if you try to read this paper, we, you know, hats off to you. We appreciate you giving it a go. But like, this was a hard paper for us to write. It took a lot of time, a lot of thinking. Um, we read everything that we referenced many times and carefully, like we studied what we were referencing, right? So it's not an easy read. And so one of the one of the things is because we were getting blocked by other scholars, we were writing in essence to them, but not primarily them. We're writing to Pacific scholars, people who are interested in doing scholarship in the Pacific, and then even beyond that as well. Anybody interested in coloniality, colonization, indigeneity, or a, a better world, we would say, right? A, a world where more people can live with dignity uh, outside of our current paradigm. I think challenging. The, the, the those ideas of like um, isolating the Pacific. Like we initially wrote this with a very different title. We were trying to reclaim Haofa and the and in the way we were critically reading Haofa. And I think one of our, our earlier titles was something like, you know, our sea of islands is not just a metaphor and playing on the uh, different articles that have come out out of indigenous and settler colonial studies in regards to that. Oh, yes, it is a metaphor in, in and of itself, but it's it's more than that. And that's kind of how I, and, the, and when Daniel and I first started having these conversations, in the things that we were writing, we were having difficult time writing it because there hadn't been anything that had been published about it. You know, this, and when we're talking about audience, this is academia, and, you know, we needed something um, prior to what we're trying to talk about now in order for us to make the arguments that we're trying to make now, because, you know, this idea around Tonga never being colonized is so deeply embedded in academia, not only in academia, but also in the communities in Tonga, outside of Tonga, that we needed to write this just to kind of 
address a lot of these um, anxieties or a lot of these. Yeah, it's like reflexivity. It's not that te- te- technical term for when you are going against everything that you know. It's called oh, cognitive uh, dissonance. Cognitive dif- dissonance, because you know the moment that somebody hears, if you're familiar with the, even when if you're familiar with the the um, the literature around Tonga, when you contest this idea that Tonga was never never being colonized, automatically you get this defense. You know, people get defensive, like, oh no, 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 we're th- this is Tonga. You know, we were never colonized. And you know, before this podcast, Daniel and I were talking about this, you know, this idea of being American. Both both Daniel and I were both born and raised in, in, the, in the States. Um, and, you know, the moment that you kind of talk beyond um, the dominant American narrative of, you know, in God we trust and all these things, people automatically get defensive and will we'll come after you. And these are the same things that we're seeing our own donors when you when you challenge things such as the Tongan monarchy, you know, the kingdom, when you challenge Christianity, there are so many um, reactions that people will have without even considering, you know, what, you know, the positionality that Daniel and I are coming from to even consider something different than, than what we actually know. Do, do you mind sharing the example? You remember one time you came back from Tonga and you had this, this, this debate around what it means to be Tongan, and you were giving an example of somebody who is a uh, is a Tongan national, but is not quote unquote racially a Tongan. And you were asking, oh, yeah. Did we get so, that? A- yeah, ASAO yeah, of 2019. Um, I was sitting at a uh, I was sitting at a table. Me, um, Fahina, Anau, um, Mesui, uh, Mesui Henry. Oh, was that TRA? TRA or uh, oh, yeah, yeah, TRA. Sorry, um, and um, and and also Kik. If you know anything, if, if you've been at Tonga um, or if you live in Tonga, you'll know who Kik is. He owns a computer shop. He's also a lecturer at um, Atenisi Institute. Um, and it's this, he's, what is he, Daniel? He's, he's Dutch. Dutch. And he also wears, he, he rides his bike everywhere and he also wears a dress. Um, and so everybody in Tonga knows him as this European fella wearing a dress, teaches at Atenisi, he teaches maths. Um, and then he owned the computer shop. And so Fahina was sitting next to me and um, Kik was sitting next to her. We're in between sessions. And Fahina was like, so where are you from? Kik was like, I'm from here. And she was like, no, but where are you from, from? And Kik was like, I, I have a Tongan passport. I'm a Tongan national. I'm, I'm from here. And so it was just this idea around nationality and ethnicity that a lot of the times we you know, get blurred because, you know, when you're meeting somebody, he's like, what's your nationality? Me, well, nationally, I'm American. I'm also a Tongan citizen. So nationally, I'm Tongan. But what they're actually asking is, what kind of brown are you? Or, yeah. you know, what's, yeah. your, what's your ethnicity? Because nationality and ethnicity get, get, um, are so entangled that we sometimes forget that you can be a Tongan national. So you are nationally Tongan, keek. A lot of the a lot of the non-Tongans that have lived in Tonga for so many years that have gained national that have gained citizenship, but you are also, but they are not ethnically Tongan in the ways that let's say, indigenous people indigenous people who are indigenous to Tonga are are um, ethnically Tongan to that place or to to Tonga. And so yeah, and so all these kind of examples, right? It's again the what we would call I guess the the limits 
of, of nationalism. And we've talked about it in the past on, on the podcast as well. Um, but again, nationalism often assumes race. And that's one of the problems of nationalism is that even in you know so-called multicultural societies, it's one that dominates and those other multicultures have to assimilate into that dominant one. But like to, to your point of cognitive dissonance, right? These are challenging things to even bring up, right? Because um, if you're socialized, meaning throughout your life, you've experienced and been told one message over and over and over and over again, it's really hard to, to challenge that. And that, that's the case even for me. And I know me and Atta both have had our journeys of critical consciousness at different times and places. I won't tell you the kind of stuff that Atta was believing in <laughs> years ago, but let's just say he's come a long ways and so have I, right? And so we're not trying to forget that we, we had our own journeys, but because of that, we're, we're still going to bring up and raise these questions and I do want to give one quote that's accredited to Frantz Fanon about cognitive dissonance, just to help kind of uh, support that, that uh, example that Atta was given. And it says, cognitive dissonance creates a feeling that is extremely uncomfortable. It's because it is so important to protect the core belief that one will rationalize, ignore, and even deny anything that doesn't fit in with that core belief, right? And so if we've been trained to have a particular core belief, even if we're, we or what to use uh, Lewis Gordon's uh, terms, sometimes we practice what's called what he calls bad faith, right? Which is when we lie to ourselves in order to not face something else that we also kind of know is true and reality. But we, he gives the example of like covering your head with a blanket, right? Like if you think the boogeyman's in the closet as a young kid and then you cover your head with a blanket, he gives this example and he's like, what is that blanket covering your head actually going to do, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't actually change the, your fear of whatever might or might not be there. But what it does is it allows you to lie to yourself. If I don't see it, it's not there, <laughs> right? So that's what he calls bad faith. And that's Lewis Gordon. But um, but yeah, so this is the stuff that we're kind of confronting. So we're aware that it, we're, we're going to trigger people. We're going to be a, a upsetting folks. And, but frankly, like this is what we've had to go through as well. And, and want to have other conversations but we're not able to until we kind of establish this. And even though our audience is um, academic in the writing, we're doing this podcast because we, we want it to be bigger than that. Because at the same time, while people, you know, on one hand are, are, are buying into this narrative, on the other hand, they're challenging it all of the time, but maybe not in the way, like maybe not calling it that, right? Maybe uh, like that example I gave earlier, just referring to something as indigenous within a Tongan context means that you're dividing up time, right? You're dividing up a different, uh, 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 as Atta would say, a pre-Tonga to <laughs> post-Tonga, right? And some people, I think, would use to say pre-Christian, post-Christian, pre-colonial, post-colonial, however you want to look at it. That exists, and people are talking about it, even if they're not academics. And so we're just trying to take all of the stuff that we see happening mm -hmm. in the communities that we're engaged with and in relation with, and at the same time, the nerdy conversations of people who are writing about stuff and like put those together and, and bring it all back out in, in, in a much bigger way. And I think one of the things that I regularly have challenges with is as someone who is very passionate and in relation with uh, the Moana, uh, the Oceania from uh, by way of Tonga, um, I don't have the Whakapapa, like I'm not Tongan myself, but I've been in relation with Tonga. I have nephews and nieces who are Tongan. Um, I've lived in, and, and in terms of like indigenous genealogy, my, my teachers of Tonga are like are my teachers, right? And so I have that as well in that sense, 
but racially I'm not. And that's often where I get kind of pushed back too. Yet, if we look at Haofa, another one of his quotes that we use in our, in our article, I, what me and Ata are doing is someone who has, you know, Tongan Whakapapa, somebody who has mine Whakapapa, who we both met <laughs> by way of Utah, um, you know, on Turtle Island. I think we, we felt like we were doing some of what Haofa was envisioning when he is theorizing Oceania. And not to not give credit to Albert Went, who talks about the new Oceania a decade before RC of Islands is published. But um, so making sure we acknowledge that as well. But anyways, Haofa says, quote, the ocean always moves. It's not just in the middle somewhere there. We are connected to Asia, to the Americas. I hope somehow in the future to make connections with America and places right around the Pacific to tell our stories and see what we can do together, close quote. And so we're kind of trying to push back against the isolation that the Pacific is regularly confronting, right? Or Oceania, the Moana, um, Juan Solwara, Tasi, um, that is constantly being isolated, right? And that includes perhaps as a challenge to the people from within it, but we wanted to kind of broaden it and say, hey, like, how do we actually, what happens when we take that bigger picture? And, and this is also Teresia Teiwa, right? She, um, when she says, you know, that the region, right? The Oceania has not been meaningfully brought to the table as an equal partner in any conversation about the nature of humanity or society, close quote. And so we're looking at bigger picture of stuff and trying to make an argument of like, hey, Tonga is relevant, first and foremost, of course, to people of Tonga and those who are connected and related. But beyond that, we need to take Tonga seriously if we're interested in indigeneity, indigenous liberation, indigenous studies, colonization, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like if we, you know, you can't talk about philosophy without talking about the Greeks who don't ever, you know, who often aren't also attributed to having learned in Egypt and other parts of <laughs> the world, right? It's always just Greek. And it's like, well, well, no, there's all kinds of stuff that they were getting influences from. But it's like, what about everywhere else, right? For, for us, people want land back. All right, fair enough. Tonga claims to have the land. Is land enough? You know, you have colonization, you have colonial, uh, colonialism, and you have coloniality, which is modernity, coloniality, which is a theory that is that is coming out of um, Latin America, um, starting with, you know, Kijano uh, Anipal, Walter Mignolo, and then, you know, other other folks, uh, Sylvia Winter, um, Nelson Malanova Torres, um, talking about colonization in a very different way or they're I think I would say they were they're talking beyond um the settler colonial these settler colonial ideas around decolonization and it was a buzzword it still is a buzzword um but I would say that they're talking beyond it from what they would call or what is called the global south and so coloniality um it was born out of Latin America it was born out of um, you know, non-English languages, Spanish, Portuguese, um, which takes a look at decol or at colonization and even, you know, colonization and decolonization in very in a very different way, um, which what they would term as coloniality original originally and still still is. Um, I it was springing out of the ideas of, of uh, Kijano, um, the coloniality of power, 
and then expanded by a lot of different um, Latin American theorists, scholars, um, you know, poets, or wh whatever you want to call it. Um, Danny, you expand on coloniality. No, no, that's good. I'll just give a quote. So Ata did a great job. It's in essence, right? It's bigger than settler colonialism. It's it begins uh, and it affects the whole globe. And I think that's like what Ata's mentioning, right? It's it's just, it's global, and so it's it's bigger than those four. And those aren't the only settler colonial nations, but those are the dominant ones that are kind of like undisputed. There's other people that will argue, you know, maybe Argentina or even South Africa, some argue are also settler colonial nations. And there's others who are trying to argue it for different parts of Latin America now. But these guys, like what they're, what, what they're saying is like, what about this global project? How did our world change, right? After Columbus, right? And that doesn't mean there wasn't stuff happening before um, that, you know, uh, is impacting and influencing this or that it's building from, but that Columbus is kind of a marker of how the world changed. Um, and uh, Nelson Maldonado Torres has an article called The Coloniality of Being. And in there he quotes, you know, the longstanding patterns of power uh, is what coloniality is, right? And it emerges out of, a, as a result of colon colonialism, right? So if we think about colonialism as like, the, the colony, right? The enforcement the, of somewhere else, right? And imperialism is the military power and force that enforces that colony or colonialism somewhere else. So he's saying that this is something that happens after, right? That it's a result of all of that process. And it's a, the long-standing patterns of power, right? Because there's things that have changed. I mean, one of the things that settler colonialism talks about is they're saying it's a structure, not an event. But at the same time, this isn't saying that it's not a structure. We're saying that this structure is ongoing and that it can shape shift because, you know, the U.S., for example, right, was once a British colony. It no longer is, right? The New Zealand is still in the Commonwealth, for example, right, with, and, and subject to the crown. And so that's sometimes the arguments that come out of that. But this is saying, hey, what are the, like, what's the everyday power that we don't even question? That's what this is talking about. It's not talking about just those nation states, but how does the whole world subject to this through capitalism, through global capitalism, through heteropatriarchy, through all these um, ideas that are enforced throughout the world in different ways. And it doesn't mean it looks the same everywhere. Everywhere is different. He goes on to say in his quote, you know, that coloniality defines culture, labor, intersubjective relations, knowledge production, right? How we even think about knowledge and what is knowledge. And he's saying that it's, it, it's all beyond the strict limits of colonial administrations. So that's where this, you know, is the ongoing power, right? So some people will talk about post-colonial and they get funny about that because they're like, oh, no, it never ended. Well, it's, is it ended or is it just life after colonialism, right? Yeah. That's how I understood post-colonial studies was not that it was over, but that it's the life after. It's like post-apocalyptic, right? Post-apocalyptic doesn't mean the apocalypse effects are over. It just means the initial event that caused the apocalypse has changed, but you're now living in a post-apocalyptic world, right? That's what post-colonialism is. But this is saying, all right, how do we identify that power that exists after those initial events? And maybe like, let's take, think about Samoa or Fiji, right? Have been under different colonial administrations. They no longer are. They're now quote unquote independent. And so, they would still be subject of coloniality, though, because in order to be independent, they have to be recognized by the geopolitical norms. And that's where Tonga is like 
ground zero, I would argue, <laughs> to really think about indigeneity, uh, coloniality, because they claim never to have been colonized. One of the one of the things that you know Latin America's Latin, these Latin American scholars um, really have built on within you know these ideas around coloniality and modernity is that um, you know colonialism has always existed. You know it, it didn't just start with Columbus getting to the Americas and you know everything that happened after that. But what they what they what they're talking about is modern colonialism is what is is the result of you know, when Columbus got here, the new world was created, and then, you know, European, emer Europe emerges, and then, you know, European colonialism and imperialism just kind of sweeps, you know, sweeps across the globe. And what they're talking is about is that modern colonialism changed, you know, the world as we know it in, in, such, a, in such a way that, um, you know, what part of the earth hasn't been kind of impacted by the, you know, the European expansion that changed the way that we um, engage with, uh, with life. And, and, you know, with what Daniel was talking, with the quote with, of Malana de Torres is that it's so deeply embedded in everything that I, we do because of the global capitalist system that has, has, that has taken hold um, today, that this needs to be addressed in order for us to kind of um, reconcile with you know the tragedies and the the genocides and all these and all these things that have impacted pretty much everyone in the entire you know in the entire world. Yeah, that's good. That's an important distinction. Yeah, it's not to say that there wasn't oppression before, but it's saying, hey, this is different, and it's different because of the scale, um, and the and and that's a planetary scale, right? Like mm -hmm. it's different because you know, and that capitalism, right, is now a global system. So even places that say that they're not colonized are still subject to global, global capitalism as <laughs> nations, right? That's what GDP is. It's measuring capital um, and the exchange and distribution of and circulation of capital. Um, and and, and as, in essence, if we look at the history of it and we see that capital is a gendered project, it's a racialized project, it's a colonial project, right? That's made possible through the a, a new kind of exploitation and extraction with the opportunity that arose through this quote unquote new worlds of the Caribbean and the Americas and an extension, I would say the Moana as well in Oceania. Cook and Cortez are separated by 250 years. So if we wanna understand the power dynamics in the Pacific, we have to look to where does it begin and start? And so that's one of the other reasons why we're, we're doing that. And again, Halfa's vision was like, hey, what can we build together by looking bigger than, that's what Oceania is, is constantly expanding. All right, then let's not limit it to just isolating it either. Time, not just bringing in these other ideas, but Tonga is, an, is, is so important for everyone else from these places to understand, to engage with, to learn from. And that's the other side of it, too. So I'm wondering <clears throat> if we should get into, like, what, what do we actually say in this paper, Ata? <laughs> Before we get to it, there's, you know, one of the things that, that kind of I remembered when as Daniel was just talking that last bit was that one of the things that sparked sparked a lot of these ideas for me you know, you know, my journey started with, you know, coloniality, colonial power, all these, a lot of these Latin American scholars, you know, I went on this summer school to Barcelona, decolonial summer school, who engaging with a lot of these scholars in person, and engaging with a lot of the literature. And one of the literature that I found that really, that really drove me towards this was um, Maria Lugones, who just recently passed away, um, article on um, 
heterosexualism and the colonial modern gender system. And so originally with the colonial out of power, um, you know, a lot of Latin American men were really driving these new ideas and theory around decolonization and coloniality. You know, Guijano and Gignolo and all these all these folks, you know, talking about labor and all these different things. And then um, Lugones comes in and she's like, hold up. Um, a lot of what they were talking about was really ignoring gender. And so she she comes out with this this um, this article. It's a really good article because a lot of the literature is very dense. A lot of it is translated from from Spanish. She gives a really good summary around um, the coloniality of power and a lot, a lot of the ideas that were emerging at that time in challenging these ideas around gender as a woman who's engaging with um, with this new literature that's coming out. And so from from kind of her perspectives around gender, that's when I was that's when I was playing around with the these ideas around indigeneity, especially, you know, a really uh Davita Kaili's book, Marking Indigeneity, the Social, the Tongan, uh, the Tongan Art of Socio-Spatial Relations. That's when I kind of went on this journey around, hey, is Tonga indigenous? Is Tonga colonized? And then why are, why does it, why isn't Tonga and kind of the broader Pacific, let's call it the remote Pacific, why isn't the remote Pacific considered indigenous in the same ways that Aotearoa, and I'm talking very polycentric, Polynesian-centric, Aotearoa and um, and Hawaii are, um, because when I'm engaging with the when I'm engaging with the literature in Latin America, Oceania has so many great opportunities of expanding these ideas because of the way that colonization and colonialism and imperialism took hold within the Pacific, and these are these are ideas that I was really confronting. Um, I, I have been confronting for years. And, you know, when uh, Linda Smith and Walter Mignolo came, I asked them a question and I didn't really know what I was asking. But I was just I was just speaking to how Oceania has such a rich perspectives around coloniality, the, the theory of coloniality in the ways that, you know, Tonga never being colonized, the militarization of, of Guam and Hawaii and Samoa, the German, the history of the Germ, uh, Germany in Samoa, New Zealand in Samoa. You know, we have um, Indo-Fijians in Fiji with, you know, British colonization there. We have Tahiti with the French. We have uh, Rapa Nui with Chile. All these different examples that provide such a rich um, conversation and critical analysis of how we can kind of speak more to coloniality, but also indigeneity within the context of Tonga. You know, and on that note, that's one of the parallels that we do to get into the paper, right? That we talk about is like, hey, we're not saying these are the these, these regions are the same, but they do have these these shared links that are often not talked about because they're divided up differently through kind of geopolitical uh, and even cultural regions, right? And and linguistically, but in 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 kind of showing those links that have been made, there is so much that could be offered in both ways. They're the global south, right? The quote-unquote global south. I know that people don't like that term. We're not saying we like it. We're just using it as a response to it's just how people understand it, right? Everyday people have heard of the quote-unquote third world. And, you know, that's what we're talking about with the global south. And that's the majority of the world. The majority world is black and brown folks who are poor. And so, like, why are we not theorizing from that position, 
right? Instead, we, you know, there's that joke of first world problems. I was like, that's what it is. It's first world scholarship. And it's like me and Atta are smuggling in our third world global south roots into the first world. Like we're getting heard more through our access of being in the quote unquote first world, being born and raised in it. But we're smuggling in third world ideas, global south ideas and perspectives because we're like, hey, man, the world is bigger than the U.S., right? People think that not just it's the center of the universe, they think the U.S. is the universe. And we're like, dude, this is a minority of the world. Most people do not live like the U.S. lives. And that's part of the problem is. And so by bringing this into uh, a conversation, we're saying, hey, we got to take Tonga seriously. And by taking Tonga seriously, we got to take all of these global south, quote unquote, third world nations uh, and experiences seriously to better understand our world as we have come to know it. And, you know, how we might confront it, better understand it and do something else altogether, um, because we're the ones always getting exploited. Right. Like there's a reason why we found each other and came into the U.S. context. There might have been different reasons, but they're also very similar and shared reasons that have to do with capitalism. There's a there's a good book, you know, as you're talking about the global south and, and the third world, there's a good book called um, The Darker Nations, a, Pe- a People's History of the Third World um, by Vijay Prashad. But he's he essentially what he's talking about is that third world nations are darker nations like yeah that's coloniality right yeah like they, they, they say third world but w- what we're talking about is non-white worlds that are underdeveloped and all the you know all these different things that reminds me like atta would always talk about this he would say that like donga is a reservation of the world <laughs> right like in yeah. And so, you know, to give an example from the paper, right, we talk about how, like, there's a process in which Tonga gets isolated, yeah. right? And, and one of the things that we mentioned, first we do, I, I will mention this briefly, is like, we're quoting Tongans and scholars of Tonga, right? But we privilege and highlight the voices of Tongan scholars to make, we're, in essence, we're making an argument, but we're making it with stuff that's already there. And, and, and also an extension other uh, Pacific scholars like Teresia Teiwa, uh, Tracy Banuamar, um, uh, you know, Basivakwa from uh, Chamorro scholar um, from Guahan. And so like we're, we're, we're privileging those, but we're also, you know, drawing from other people who have taken the region seriously and, and done good scholarship there. So that's what we're using. But one of the things is that we look at is how Tonga actually became isolated. And I'm wondering, Ata, because uh, I know you did some extra work on this one too, want to talk a little bit about that protectorate status and, and celebrating Tongan Independence Day. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, because one, one of the things that people would understand, you know, when we look at the histories of Tonga, a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different histories of, of Tonga, is that, you know, Tonga celebrates this, you know, idea, this, um, our independence, it's not titled that, but, you know, November 4th is a national holiday. And, you know, typically there's, depending on what day it falls on, Tongans will celebrate it on a Friday or a Monday, um, which is um, we're celebrating our independence from the crown, from Great um, from Great Britain, um, from our protectorate status. So Tonga officially becomes a nation in 1875, um, and then we were made protectorate in, I think, 1900 or around that time. Um, and then in 1970, we finally gained our independence in November of, uh, of 1970. 
and you know it's no it's no um it's not a coincidence because fiji gained their independence in october of 1970 and then we gained our independence in, in 1970 but tongan you know when you tell tongans that or people who don't who think tonga, tonga was never colonized that you know we gained our independence in 1970 they're like what do you mean we gained our independence in, in 1970? I'm like, <laughs> we we were freed, we were freed from you know this protectorate status. Um, where I think part of the part of the protectorate status is that they created a premier, or I think it was a premier, or a basically there was somebody who was kind of the hand of the king. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the king. I think it was a premier, the hand of the the king who who, you know, we couldn't make any decisions without, you know, the without, I, I wouldn't say permission, but with, without kind of the jurisdiction, let's say, the, juris, the, the jurisdiction of, of the British crown. The, you know, part of that isolation study is like, oh, you guys can govern yourselves, but you have no say in international affairs. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's this paternalistic relationship. <laughs> like, how is that not, call it, what, what do you want to call it then, right? You know, yeah, yeah. the British Empire, or the, you know, in essence, to be a protectorate meant yeah. that you have no say in international affairs. So you're literally being isolated from the globe you can only govern yourselves, right? And that's kind of like what's happening on the reservation just south of here where I'm at in Utah, right? Like <laughs> they can police themselves, but they can't police people who come in. They have no jurisdiction for people who are outside the res who come in. I'm like, is there not a parallel going on here? The other thing, too, is that people were eyeing Tonga. The European powers were debating uh, who's going to take it. And you had mentioned yeah. this. You want to talk about that a little bit? Like Germany? Yeah, I mean, if, if you read a lot of the a lot of the accounts around Tonga at this time or what we know as Tonga at this time, you know, there are so many powers vying to to colonize or to annex Tonga. So, you know, we have Germany, the German influence in Samoa, and then we have, you know, the labor uh, the labor that was brought in there and then the german germany takes hold of um of Ava'u. they build a coaling this huge coaling station um and this was at the time this was kind of when donga was became a protectorate because um great britain knew that knew kind of the the um strategic location of donga a lot of the accounts that you read uh, around Ava'u is that Ava'u is is one of the best ports in the Pacific. It's very central, you know, um, on its way to New Zealand and Australia. It's it's cent it's centered, you know, even with Pango Pango, Pango Pango is a, a, a great one, but Bavau was kind of everybody was kind of vying for it. And so when um Germany came into um came into Vavau, they established a lot of plantations and you know it would, they would eventually probably brought in you know labor from from Micronesia. Um, and that's when Great Britain came in and and um, essentially they forced Tonga into the pr protectorate status. If you read the records, you know, it wasn't a choice. They were like, you either become a protectorate or we make you become a protectorate. The interesting thing about the history within this within this region is is New Zealand. 1800s, New Zealand comes into Aotearoa, you know, um, that history we can say for another time, but you know they colonize Aotearoa. A lot of a lot of the um, the wars and um, with um, with Maori, and then New Zealand becomes a dominion in um, in, in the eighteen hundreds. You know, and then Tonga becomes a nation state in the eighteen hundreds, and then Tonga becomes a protectorate by Great Britain in um, 
in the 1900s, I think it was 1900, and then New Zealand becomes a colony. And so you can kind of see the differences of the way in which Great Britain sees Tonga and New Zealand and only making Tonga a protectorate, but allowing New Zealand, who, you know, who's settled by Europeans to become a colony. Right. And when we look at the migration patterns, it's so interesting, right? Because Tonga gets physically isolated and politically isolated, but is at the same time forced into dependency into a global uh, system of both economics and culture. The, the narrative goes, right, they dedicated the land to God and God protected them and they weren't colonized by any foreign powers. But perhaps that process in and of itself was part of preparing it to become <laughs> subject to British power. And that's one of the things that we know could also be quite challenging in the paper that we talk about, um, and that's confronting the role of Christianity. Um, and, you know, the London Missionary Society in Tonga and that legacy, perhaps it didn't delay or prevent, we're just offering a different narrative, right? Perhaps it didn't protect or delay or kind of, you know, sub subjugation to the British crown, but maybe that's what ordained it, let's say. That's <laughs> what we say in the paper is, you know, um, this Christian conversion. And so that's another one, right? And looking at uh, Sione Latukefu's work, and if you haven't read any of his work, I mean, really important scholar, Tongan uh, uh, um, historian, but also was a Fifakao, uh, a Methodist minister. And he kind of raises it, right? He, he refers to Taufa Ahau's quote-unquote unification of Tonga as a crusade. And, and so, like, it opens up a very different narrative, right? Was it unified or was it conquered, right? Was there a delay or was that it? Was that thing that's called the delay of becoming a protectorate, um, was that actually the, the, the form of colonialism and coloniality to enter into a new logic and into a new common sense of the world, right? You have to become quote unquote civilized in order to be recognized as independent. And the way you do that is you have to be a civilized society, which means you have to be a modern nation state. And so, you know, we're asking those hard questions. And I'm, you know, we're trying to be gentle too. I mean, we're not pulling any punches in the paper, but at the same time, you know, I, you know, we remember our critical consciousness journeys. And I remember sometimes being asked stuff a decade ago and even longer that was triggering for me. And I was subject to cognitive dissonance and in essence, you know, practicing bad faith and lying to myself because I didn't want to confront certain things. And so we know that this is going to cause that, but we're hoping that other people will, will um, you know, be open to at least considering it and engaging with some of that process. Do you want to talk about Christianity out there? Because I know that's a, a topic near and dear to your heart. <laughs> that, definitely. I mean, because I, I have a lot of these conversations, these conversations in, um, in academic spaces because I am challenging colonization uh, within the context of Donga, which a lot of it is is talking about Christian. A lot of it is involves Christianity. Um, and so, you know, as Daniel is talking about, you know, the conversion of Donga to Christianity, a, a lot of the time this it's romanticized. You know, a lot of what we hear is, you know, oh, Taufa Hao, you know, Dupo, the first modern king of Tonga, talking about modern Tonga and how we how we converted to Christianity. But if you look at the history, if you look at the accounts of what actually occurred in order for for Christianity to take to take hold, you'll realize just kind of the crimes against humanities, the countless lives that were killed in the name of 
of you know of Jesus and of of God in order to attain what you know the what Dalfa Hao was trying to bring together. You know, this this is just the the accounts of what, what actually happened. There are, there are good things that Dalfa Hao did, but a lot of people that died um, in the name of God to to achieve what he did in creation creating the nation state. Um, and so a lot of the times when I'm in these spaces, a lot of, um, especially with Tongans, when I'm talking about colonization and I'm talking about create, uh, Christianity, there's such a high cognitive dif- dis- dissonance um, against kind of the narratives that the narratives that they've um, they've um, they've grown up in that when I when I criticize Christianity, a lot of the times the response is not necessarily in defense of Christianity, but it's in defense of their very own identity as being Tongan. To give some, you know, just some support to what Atta's saying as well, like I'm going to give a couple of quotes here from our paper, and the, but this is us quoting somebody else, right? And so again, just to emphasize that we're putting together what we see as always having been there. We've been having these discussions for years, and we're like, maybe if we talk about it and give it language and identify it in this kind of way, then maybe we can get to other stuff that we really want to get to, but we can't until we settle this uh, uh, at least a little bit further at this moment in time. And this is from Nasili Makauta, who is a, a Tongan theologian. I'm going to repeat that, a Tongan theologian, right? Somebody who's studying the Bible, Christianity, uh, a really prominent and respected uh, Methodist minister as well, um, based in Tomoki Makauta. Um, and he has a really great book that rereads the Bible from the perspective of Tu'a, which was initially people on the on the margins or, or later uh, younger, but has been conflated um, with, with class, right? So Tu'a now has been translated as commoner, right? Which is an adoption from, again, a class system um, very much linked to capital. Anyways, he, he, in his book, he, he wrote some of these things that we quote in here. And he says, uh, in refer- reference to what happened in Tonga, this transformation, um, which, frankly, was an apocalypse, just like it was everywhere else in the world. Modernity is an apocalyptic event globally. Um, and it looks different in different places because everywhere is unique. But he says the Tongan traditional hierarchy transformed into a col- colonial version of the British monarchy and hierarchy. This political influence brought a concept that was alien to Tongan culture, a text in the form of a constitution, which proclaimed on paper the emancipation of quote-unquote commoners, the colonial translation of tu'a, on the one hand. But on the other hand, it gave more power to chiefs and nobles, eiki, on the other. So we then go on and say that this process likewise constructed not only the native, but the native mindset, right? So we haven't even gotten indigeneity, right? But this is what happens, right? Colonial encounter produces and invents the native. Go read Franz Fanon, talks about this. And this is what also Vakauta is talking about in the context of Tonga. He says, quote, self-contradictory and self-annihilating. The, this entailed preference for Western lifestyles over traditional ones, Western cultures over the local, Western religion over Tongan religion, Western values over Tongan values, The colonial mentality also gave the natives a new notion of place that divided countries and peoples into empire and colonies, as well as centers and margins, close quote. So he, you know, he talks about how, yeah, on one hand, it talks that the the national narrative is liberating or common people. But 
inequality has only exacerbated because it gave way more power to elites. But if you're only saying, oh, we give, we, oh, look at what we gave you, this, you're not going to say, hey, look at what we ended up taking extra of. And so he's quite, uh, you know, he's raising these, these hard questions. But that last point he brings up, right, that's coloniality, I would argue, right? The common sense of the modern world, right? What is the margin and what's the center? And this is something that if you go to Tonga, like you see everywhere, like now it's Kolo and Uta, right? You have this divide between where you farm and these highly more densely populated centers, right? City centers. And at the same time, then you also have Tonga, Tonga Tapu, right? The, the principal island where the capital is. And then you have Mot, right? Or all these other outer islands. And even the logic there, people have, there's different ideas of, oh, are you from Uta? Or are you from Kol, right? Are you from the plantation? Or are you from town? And then on the further level, it's like, oh, are you from the main island or are you from these outer islands? But if you're from the outer island, that ain't outer, right? You're in the you're you're at home. You're in the middle of the place. You are in the center of the universe. But no longer now you are marginal. Now you are outside. And so this is what Bakauta is pointing to. And so just to support what Atta's talking about, and it comes through um, this colonial process. Um, and again, Christianity has this legacy in history too. That we're not talking about belief here, we're talking about the politics of identity, because to be Christian meant to be civilized, meant to be human. If we look into ancient European history and how it emerges there, and that translates to other places as well, right? So then that same logic to be civilized, to be modern. Um, and I mean, tragically, I've heard this plenty of times too, when I'm in Tonga as well, oh, before we were civilized, before we were Christian. Um, and so that is often conflated together. Um, and then the other point I want to bring up just to support what they're saying as well is a, a quote by um, Fui Fui uh, Lupe Numeitolu, who's uh, wrote a, a really great um, thesis um, or dissertation where she's confronting the role of Christianity and the gender power dynamic within Tonga. And um, she says, she quotes the new hegemony. Now, hegemony is a system of power, right? This is cultural power. That's the true power, really, right? Because when you think about material power, that's what you're be. That's maybe what you're coerced to do physically. But when you choose to do something, or when you choose to enforce something, or when you choose to police somebody else, that's the real power because you're doing the work for somebody else. That's hegemony, right? And that's how we can think about the way that Tonga, right, was doing the work for other people um, in order to become a nation, right? The same kind of violence you see in other places. And she says here. Quote, this new hegemony is symbolized by the centering of the new white and male God, and thus the new values of white supremacy and heteropatriarchy are privileged in Tonga. Under this new hegemony, violence against Tongan women becomes a necessary technology to maintain the new status quo. The spatiality of the Tongan nationalist family is central, and it consolidates and normalizes these, close quote. So the new family is no longer Kainga, it's now the nation state. And that national identity then erases all the other diversity that still exists and that existed before, but that's no longer considered legitimate in the same way because of, of this. And there was all these processes, won't go into all the details, um, got to be the paper for that because I'm looking at time and we've already been talking for ages. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything to add. You're okay, Saibe? Yeah, yeah, I'm right. good. Fine, I'll add another one then here. So this is another quote, because I just want to, uh, again, I want to highlight that we're quoting 
these really important and incredible scholars um, and, and their ideas that we're just saying, hey, we got to take these ideas seriously. And we ask some hard questions. But one of the things that we get to at the end, right, is, you know, we can't even be critical of indigeneity yet, right? Because we haven't even established indigeneity within Tonga. We have to do that in order to get to that next stage. Um, but one of the things that we say is like, hey, what about indigenous prophecy, right? And what we mean by that, indigenous then in this context is anything that is before, after, or exceeds modernity, right? The echoes of other possibilities beyond this new global system that we're all forced into. So Dr. Kefu's book, Church and State. So chapter five, the search for a monarch, and then it's footnote number three, or endnote, not footnote, endnote. That's why you got to look at those things, right? So this was a gem. The first time I read it, I totally overlooked it because I wasn't reading endnotes or footnotes. Next time I read it, I was like, oh, wow. What does this mean, right? So on one hand, you have this really powerful nationalist message of, you know, giving over the land to God and that God protected the people. On the other hand, we might say, hey, maybe this process is what colonized the people. You've got to decide for yourself. But Latifepa writes this down, and this is coming from Queen Salot. So we got to think about that too, right? Third monarch, this is something to think about. Why, Why would she make this history known, which in essence provides a criticism or hard questions to ask of even her own positionality. So there's something to be uh, said about her willingness to share this and the importance of, of what it might mean. So it says, quote, according to the tradition held by Her Majesty, the late Queen Salote and the people of Tontap, King George Tafa Ahau was born at Lavaca's place, Kahoa at Fual, Tongatap. So it is said that when Homo Faleono, King George's mother, became pregnant, she developed a peculiar craving for human blood. This so alarmed her father, Ma'afu Vaini, that he gave instructions to kill the infant, George, King George the I, at birth, if it were born a boy, for he would be a danger to Tonga, close quote. How should, should we reconsider this indigenous prophecy then, right? And obviously with what has transpired, and this is shared by one of the, you know, his descendants. And we're, again, we're just putting it out there and we're just saying, hey, what does this mean then? All right, so that's just, we'll, we'll, we'll end the paper on that. Like there's more to it, you know, but one of the last things we get to is we talk about Tevita Kaili's work and how he is developing uh, an identity beyond nationalism, an identity that begins before, well before and exceeds any notions of modern nationalism. And perhaps we should take that stuff way more seriously as well, uh, especially considering these indigenous prophecies that were warnings of what would transpire or come, right? So how should we rethink uh, Christianity as a processor, as a system of power, right? Not to say that there isn't other things going on there, right? Like we might even consider maybe we need to call what Tongans are doing Tongan Christianity, right? Which is something else altogether. And maybe there's other names that maybe should emerge in that process. But that being said, you know, if Tonga is is subject to coloniality, like the rest of the world, and at the same time is a unique and beautiful place because it does have access to land, but at the same time is dependent on now like, you know, remittances and all kinds of things, then maybe we need to rethink and reconsider that.
But this leads to what Atta is doing in his work. I you know want to just give maybe a little bit of a teaser because I know <laughs> you got we're gonna we'll do a full one with Atta once he finishes. But Tongan indigeneity, Atta. So with Tongan indigeneity, it's just building off of you know a little bit of what I was talking about before in my research with family and music. Um, and then, you know, I did mention Tevita Kaili's uh, book, Marking Indigeneity, and that's where a lot of these ideas around this concept that I've been playing around with in my thesis and my doctoral thesis um, around Tongan indigeneity. You know, when I originally talked about Tong, when I originally started talking about Tongan indigeneity, it really was um, inf highly influenced by Tevita Kaili, as well as the work that Daniel and I have been doing, uh, also with Kaili and um, Inokeha Foka. And so, Tongan indigeneity was a way for me to kind of think through a lot of the things that I was confronting in my research, you know, around, you know, what, what is Tonga? Who is Tonga? You know, who is the fat Tongan family? You know, what is Tongan music? All these ideas, you know, Devita Gaili's work really allowed me to kind of, to kind of push the limits of where I was trying, of what I was trying to say. And so when you look at marking indigeneity, Devita Gaili is, look, is, 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 I would say is looking at, you know, Tongan culture, Tongan society, and, and he's he's look he's speaking to it through indigeneity and thinking about Tonga pre-colonization, pre-Tonga, or beyond colonization, and so that's just kind of got me thinking about you know, in in his book he doesn't actually ever talk about Tonga and indigeneity in the same word Tongan indigeneity. And I would say it's because of the way that the politics around indigeneity are play out because Tongan aren't, Tongans don't act, don't, for the most part, Tongans don't consider themselves indigenous, nor would non-Tongans consider Tongans indigenous. And when I presented these ideas at the Tongan Research Association conference in 2019, I remember right after I presented, um, the, the president of TRA gets up and, you know, she kind of mentions that you know she wouldn't they wouldn't consider Tonga to be indigenous so it was interesting in the ways that you know presenting at an academic conference the reactions of presenting kind of these new ideas around Tongan indigeneity would play out but essentially what I'm talking about Tongan indigeneity is this is kind of my way of confronting colonization is that to consider Tongans within these idea the realm of indigeneity is to consider how colonization vastly changed the entire scope of our everyday life with the creation of Tonga. And, you know, Daniel was talking about this, this idea that I talked about of, of pre-Tonga, because when I talk to, when I talk to a lot of folks, especially with Tongans, I tell them that Tonga never existed before it was created, which is very hard for Tongans to kind of, um, to kind of comprehend in thinking that, wait, if we weren't Tonga before, what were we? And that's kind of, in essence, where I'm trying to get at is that once the nation state was created, once Tonga was created, now we have a brand new identity that is being established, specifically within the region of Tonga Tapu and, you know, the Tu'i Tonga. And so that's where kind of a lot of um, the ideas around being Tongan is really driven, is coming from the narratives of the Tu'i Tonga and, and kind of the place of where Tonga Tapu Tongatapu is situated. So for me, Tongan indigeneity is an opportunity of addressing coloniality that is so deep, that is indebted, that is um, embedded with the creation of the nation state, but also it's an opportunity of decoloniality. You know, a lot of the times we're talking about, when we're talking about decolonization, decolonization this, decolonization that, what coloniality is saying is 
until we address, you know, the systemic or the systems of power or the foreign system of power that are so deeply ingrained within who we are, you know, wherever we are, how can we even consider how to free ourselves or the language they use within decolonial theory or coloniality is how we are even able to de-link from these systems um, in the first place. And so that's kind of a brief kind of intro to what I'm talking about in my thesis is that confronting coloniality is an opportunity of decoloniality. And I think that's where a lot of a lot of the, the scholars in coloniality are talking about because a lot of the times they don't even talk about coloniality. They're talking about modernity slash coloniality within the same paradigm because modernity is is a product of coloniality. So to be modern is to be colonial, I would say is what they're saying. And this provides an opportunity of delinking and what we would call decoloniality. Now, awesome, man. We'll definitely bother you when you finish out, get some more into that. And, and that's the thing is, that, you know, again, just to bring back all the way to some of the things you said at the very beginning um, is, you know, this is, of course, you know, um, we want it to be available for people from the communities to consider. Um, and, you know, Dulo, we're probably going to upset a lot of people. But, um, <laughs> you know, the main thing is we just want to ask these questions and raise it because it offers a different narrative, like you mentioned, to D-Link, right? If, if, if Tonga wasn't subject to coloniality, then what means is that the, some of the struggles that they have, then what it does is it produces racist ideas. It's like, oh, well, it's because you're this or you're that, or you're unintelligent or, or you this is just a Tongan thing, right? Whether it's domestic violence or other issues that have you know, creeped in, where it's just like, well, wait a minute. No, if we can actually identify and show the historical links of how this gets introduced and, 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 and arrives, then it's like, wait a minute, no, like, this isn't something that's about you. This is something bigger. It's part of something much bigger that you're not alone in. And then the other thing too, right, for indigenous studies and indigenous issues and identities as well, like land is so important. We're not saying it isn't, but by taking Tonga seriously, we can say, is land enough? Because you can have your land and maybe you don't have the land because you have elite power dynamics internally, right? So is land enough or is it, we have to have a, a a, a paradigm shift even within that disrupts the power dynamics within indigeneity. And then on top of that, right, what about ocean and the water, right? Like in the context of Oceania, to be so focused on land is what landlocks you. It's what isolates you and what limits the access to the rest of the planet, to the rest of the globe, which is what the ocean does in the sky, right? And so by being so land-centric, we miss out on what, what are the connections and opportunities by following the paths of water and the sky as well? So again, absolutely want to make sure we uphold the mana of local folks, but this is relevant beyond it, right? Just like, you know, again, I use that example always because, you know, the Greeks in philosophy, everybody's like, okay, we've got to look to them. All right, well, then if we want to talk about indigeneity, <laughs> let's look to Tonga, you know, and, and let's look at that. Let's take that, that claim seriously and, you know, provide some, hard questions and think about it and y'all can decide what you think for yourselves. But um, before you start sending Atta any hate mail, uh, make sure you read the paper first, <laughs> read the references, study the end notes, <laughs> and then, uh, and then you can send him hate mail. Don't send anything. to me. <laughs> I mean, one of the last things that I, I would say is that, I mean, what Daniel and I have addressed in this paper for me is nothing new. 
Gong has a rich history of philosophers and artists and poets that have already addressed these these things, um, except they did it they do it very indirectly, uh, I would say. And so for me, you know, Queen Salote was the first who really who really took seriously the impacts of modern colonialism that took hold in Tonga. You know, Queen Salote, um, she saw the changes and she she did it. I would say she did a 360. Let's go back to our roots. Let's go back to the culture, to the language, to, to the traditions, to the Da'olala. And it was really her that disrupted entirely, I would say, you know, um, the influences that had already taken such a hold within Tongan society in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s until her death. That she herself worked up until her up until her deathbed to make sure make sure that Tonga was in the good hands to um, to move forward. And so, you know, post Queen Salote, you have so many great scholars and philosophers and people in Tonga society that made social changes that have contributed to um, I what I would call a Tongan Renaissance. And I've talked about it with Daniel and a few other folks. You have Sonalatu Gefu, you have Epeli uh, Haofa, you know, Futa um, Helu, and all of these are men. Um, you have a lot of women as well, Konai Themen Helu, as well as um, now we have Melanite Damofolao, but a lot of these folks were addressing um, colonization, decolonization. A lot of them were talking about it um, very indirectly because just of the way the politics play out within, you know, Tongan hierarchy and social structure and rank that, you know, if you read a lot of Epeli Haofa, he knew that he couldn't take it head on because the repercussions that would happen. And so Daniel and I are taking a much more direct and confronting um, approach, which sometimes it's, it's something that we have to do to consider in order for us to move on, in order for us to think more critically about our history and about the social issues that are being, that are, that are happening in Tonga today, I would say coloniality is the starting point to kind of provide a voice for those, um, for those who are, who don't have a voice to provide a voice for, or to provide an opportunity for us to, to kind of disrupt the systems of power that that impact a lot of uh, a lot of Tongans today in order for us to move forward. Awesome words to end on. There's so much more, but we'll we'll spare the rest of you for now until the next time I can get Atta on here. Malo Pitoa. Oh.